Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it gives me great pleasure on behalf of the London School of Economics, which was my home university for many years till I changed jobs at the end of March, uh, to welcome a very distinguished academic student of the Middle East and of international relations, an ambassador for Lebanon and for the Arab world in the intellectual and cultural and policy spheres, someone who at the same time knows well the British and American academic and policy worlds and has sought to bridge them as well, and last and far from least, an old and very dear friend. Uh, we first met, I think, about 30 years ago in what was a town, small town in Germany, which was then the capital of the German Federal Republic, Bonn, uh, where we were at a conference on, I think, Saudi Arabia, the country in which Professor Salami wrote his PhD, uh, organized by the think tank of the German Social Democratic Party, the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. And I have a fine photograph of the two of us with our late friend, Dr. Nazi Ayubi. Uh, we had somewhat more hair than we have now, and he had a marvelous, flamboyant, what English would call louche moustache, and looked very well indeed. And I intend to find a photograph of this and send it to him. Uh, Dr. Salame. Uh, is now a professor at Sciences Po in Paris, uh, but he's taught at Saint-Joseph in, in Beirut and also at the American University. His long-standing academic and, and policy links with American universities just spent three months at Columbia. And he's also been for many years an advisor to the UN Secretary General. And it is a matter of sadness, but too important to recall that after his three years as Minister of Culture in Lebanon, which ended in 2003, he went on behalf of the Secretary General to Baghdad and was, in fact, in the building of the UN building when the probably Al-Qaeda blew it up and killed the great Brazilian diplomat Sergio de Mello and 29 others. Uh, we are very lucky to have him here. And I remember when he came back, he said something to me, which in those days nobody recognized. He said, Fred, the real occupying power in Iraq is not the United States, it's Iran. And as the days pass, this becomes clearer and clearer. His books include, in English, perhaps the best-known Democracies Without Democrats, a major work of political sociology on the Arab world published in the 1990s, an earlier work on the foundations of the Arab state, and two recent works, Appel d'Empire, Ingérence et Résistance à l'Age de la Mondialisation, published in 1996, and his most recent book, Quand l'Amérique refait le monde, When America Remakes the World, the title, Ironic, when he wrote it, and Ironic now, uh, published in 2005 and which has appeared in Arabic and Persian. His lecture this evening is part of a series, which we owe the generosity of the French Embassy, uh, on Franco-British-Europe relations, uh, which is to celebrate the relations between LSE and Sciences Po, which have been established in recent years. And I'd particularly like to welcome here the Ambassador of the Republic of France, Monsieur Bourdeau Montaigne, and other colleagues from France and Lebanon who joined us this evening. Hassan, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, dear Fred, for this introduction. I would like also to thank LAC for inviting me to somehow 
this closing session of the series on the dialogue across the channel. Uh, I would also like uh, to recognize and, uh, uh, the presence uh, of a number of friends, uh, including uh, my former colleague in the uh, Lebanese cabinet and uh, former prime minister, Mr. Mikati, and of course, uh, Monsieur Gouldeau-Montagne and other friends in the, in, in the audience. I would also like to express my admiration for the program now so strongly binding Sciences Po to LSE for the opportunity it offers graduate students to benefit from more than one scholarly view on the world and in particular for giving them the chance to widen their knowledge, to compare views and to revisit their own intellectual frames. General de Gaulle had famously written vers l'Orient compliqué j'allais avec des idées simples and the simple idea many leaders do entertain when getting into their positions is precisely to avoid Mideastern headaches, usually to suffer from them with a vengeance immediately after. Though Iraq cannot easily disappear from the screen, nor possibly Iran, nor the oil prices, nor the risks of renewed terrorist attacks, nor the pressure of immigration on public opinions, this wish has been well encapsulated in an essay by our colleague Philip Auerswald, precisely titled The Irrelevance of the Middle East, where he bluntly states, we almost universally view this region as one of paramount importance. This line of argument is so familiar that it is almost impossible to conceive of it being mistaken. Yet it is. Many leaders would say, Amen. If only this were true, if only the champions of the Middle East irrelevance were right in saying, as they do, that oil is a feeble strategic weapon and oil producers, because they are rational actors, wish to maximize their long-term revenues and will therefore seek stable oil prices, that nuclear terrorism is certainly a worry, but that the Middle East is not even close to being at the center of that threat which needs to be sought further east in the Indian subcontinent and the Korean Peninsula, that transport lanes through the Middle East have lost their importance centuries ago to the benefit of the large oceans, the Atlantic first and now the Pacific, that technological innovation is so miserable in the Middle East, if you exclude Israel, the region produces five times fewer patents than sub-Saharan Africa, and therefore there is nothing to fear from that quarter. That local conflicts are part of that region's normal state of affairs, and the best way to treat these local conflicts is precisely to keep them local. Hence the conclusion, and I am quoting, the long-term importance of the Middle East is roughly proportional to the share of the world population for which the, this region accounts, less than 5%. The Middle East will matter less and less to most of the world. The policy recommendations that flow from this line of thinking are predictable. First, that sometimes paying less attention leads to better outcomes. In other words, you better turn your back to that irrelevant and desperate part of the world. Second, 
that no country in the Middle East matters enough in the 21st century to justify starting a war, and certainly not Iraq, which is possibly good news for many in the Middle East, and more importantly, third, that any country that persists in focusing intently on peripheral concerns, such as those stemming from the Middle East, risks, risks ultimately becoming peripheral itself. A lesson those Europeans obsessed with the Middle East would better learn if they really want their union to be a leading entity in the global system. Many people in Northern Europe, including in this country, would not refute the proposition according to which too much interest in the Middle East is a waste of time and energy, not to mention treasury. It also is a sure way of adding a chapter to transatlantic tensions and a useless distraction from much more serious business elsewhere. Many would relate the statement on the basic irrelevance of this particular region to the triumph of globalization. The word is flat, as one Pulitzer-winning New York Times columnist had put it, and the Middle East, when compared to Asia or to Latin America, is left with a very modest part in it. Its fear of globalization, its archaic opposition to it, have basically excluded it from the huge movement of commodities, of investments, of ideas, of institutions and values that together, though in different rankings, are part of that movement. Others would instead detect a streak of isolationism in many Western capitals, following two decades of a confused, assertive, often counterproductive concoction of neoliberal and neoconservative activism across the world that led to a large number of frustrated dreams and to a few tragedies such as Iraq. I won't exclude a third explanation, so well rendered in a short poem, in a short Arab poem of the ninth century, on the fox who desperately tries to catch grapes and could not reach them and ends up saying they are not ripe anyway. Demonstrating that the Middle East is quite to the contrary of all this line of thinking, very relevant to world powers and to Europe in particular, would probably be banal. I will not follow to do that. I will not follow the many self-appointed experts on the Middle East who assert ad nauseam the region's absolute centrality and utter exceptionalism in world politics in order to promote their own status in their own societies as so well analyzed by the late Edward Said in his Opus Magnum on Orientalism some three decades ago. I do not take more seriously those who do the same because of some ethnic, religious, or tribal connection to some part of the Middle East. And my intention is certainly not to repeat here the arguments of those Spaniards, Frenchmen, and Italians who have been complaining of the orientation to the north and to the east, and more bluntly to Germany's views of the whole European project since the fall of the Berlin Wall on a rainy day in November 1989 to the detriment of their countries and of their worries and dreams across the Mediterranean. Yet, it is legitimate to ask why is this region exactly relevant to those who do not live in it? Why in particular it is 
any of the Europeans' business. Those who have been observing European politics in the past few decades would eagerly observe that the Middle East hits European politics where it hurts. It amplifies the divide between fervent Atlanticists and those who are less so. It aggravates the sensitive and very controversial issue of Europe's optimal borders. It unveils the exclusion-inclusion divide that is at the core of any regional endeavor, and therefore it ends up questioning the very nature of the European project itself, a far from settled issue. The Middle East, in addition, opposes Northern to Latin Europe on the question of priorities, both in security and in identity matters. And Southern Europeans are torn between the temptation to try and involve their fellow Europeans from the North in their Mediterranean worries, or to the contrary, to develop a selfish relationship with the South that would counterbalance the recent shift of the EU, both to the North and to the East. We have recently witnessed the replay of all these tunes on the question of Turkey's accession to the Union on the margin of the war on Iraq and the unfortunate remarks of a particularly blunt U.S. Secretary of Defense on old versus new Europe. And again, when the French president came with his old new idea of a union for the Mediterranean. My answers go hopefully a bit deeper than being just another dip into these polemics. Why is the Middle East any of Europe's business? The first answer is to be found in its very location on the map. What does it mean to say that the Middle East is at the point of juncture of three continents? Is it really important? This obviously means that the area is important for international communications by sea, Suez, Dardanelles, Hormuz, Babel Mandeb, by air, notably over, for overflight rights, by land, Remember what happened to the 4th U.S. Army uh, going to Iraq through Turkey and prevented from doing so by the uh, Turkish parliament. It is therefore an asset when regional actors are strong enough to use it to their advantage. This is well documented in the great new volume written by Findlay and O'Rourke on the history of trade and war between the years 1000 and 2000 published by Princeton a few weeks ago, who remind us how, I'm quoting, the only one of the seven regions that experienced regular and direct contact with all of the others in the world as it looked around the year 1000 was the Islamic world of North Africa and Southwest Asia. History is replete with European worries, flirting sometimes with paranoia, on the emergence of a strong power at this particular place on the world map that would prevent or at least overtax European trade with Asia. This particular fear was already expressed by Herodotus concerning the Persians' invasion of Greece and by many, many others since in relation to the Phoenicians' control of the Mediterranean, the first and durable Islamic first expansion in Western Europe, the Ottoman Empire's permanent pressure on Vienna, Muhammad Ali, the ruler of Egypt's ambitions in the Levant, the Arabian Peninsula, and even in Greece, for which he will pay dearly at Navarino, not to mention more recently many a reaction to Nasser's Arab nationalism, to Saddam's brutal territorial expansionism, or to Iran's present and substantial regional ambitions. This certainly was one of the major reasons for the Suez War in 1956. But viewed from the region itself, a clear asset becomes a true liability 
When regional actors are unable to master their destiny, extra-regional forces may consider that the countries are too unstable or too weak to be left alone in control of a Middle East that is too well positioned, too well endowed to be ignored. Therefore, there is nothing absolutely new to the most common fear one senses these days, the fear that being too close to Europe, the Middle East needs to be orderly enough not to upset the European own regional order or social fabric. The fear that being too important for world communications and transport, it needs to be orderly and quiet so that globalization flows are not disrupted by archaic political and security concerns. And last but not least, the underlying fear with local <coughs> states too weak to impose control and order, a sort of a vacuum is created where other extra-regional forces may try and export security in order to fill that vacuum to their advantage. Some European and many Asian reactions to the build-up of American military power in that region after 1980 do stem from such a fear, the fear of leaving that doorway to the Indian Ocean, to Central Asia, or to East Africa in the hands of weak, important local powers, or no less worrying in the hands of some non-Middle Eastern world power. Europe has inherited these two categories of fear. It is quasi-automatically apprehensive of any emergent power in the Middle East that could impose its order on that region before reverting to the opposite fear of chaos once that power starts declining, often thanks to European hostile scheming. And this deeply rooted sensitivity, although shared by all world players, is particularly visible in Europe because of historical reminiscence and more so because of geographical proximity. Even in this era of globalization and of the much trumpeted end of distance, proximity still plays a crucial role in international politics. This is particularly true in terms of legal and especially illegal immigration, where the Mediterranean is to Europe what the Rio Grande is for the United States. Only those who know nothing about the miserable pateras trying to reach the Spanish coast or the almost daily human drama in the Italian volcanic and extremely beautiful island of Lampedusa can ignore the fact. Add to that that the southern shore of the Mediterranean is now the first stop for sub-Saharan huge illegal immigration. Many Europeans want Libya, Algeria, and Morocco not to be strong enough to challenge European policies, but to be strong enough to be a wall protecting Europe from this new and substantial threat. Though admittedly less relevant to the northern part of the continent, proximity with the Middle East is something that neither old members of the Union such as Italy or France, or new ones such as Romania and Bulgaria can ignore. This particular and somehow permanent geographical configuration largely explains the second answer to the assumption of irrelevance, a sort of a historical determinism that makes that region a permanent object of foreign interference. The Sassanids, the Macedonians, the Arabs from the peninsula, the Seleucids, the Ottomans, the European powers, of course, the Soviets, the Americans, you can't be a great power if you are absent from that scene. China 
had been a very big power, but it remained a regional one precisely because it did not expand to the West, but built a wall to defend itself against invaders from the West. The Mongols could have been a lasting world empire because they reached the shores of the Mediterranean and the gates of Budapest. But let's come closer to our times. World War I and World War II were also fought in the Middle East. Nobody, in this country at least, can forget Al-Qut battle during the first or Al-Alamein in the second. The First World War helped establish many of the present states in the Middle East. The second helped precipitate the independence of some of them as well as the creation of the State of Israel. Outside the European continent, probably no other region in the world, East Asia possibly excluded for World War II only, has been as deeply affected by these two mainly European wars. To a certain extent, Middle East military theaters have determined the outcome of both world wars, and these in return have greatly changed the Middle East itself. The region was also to be rapidly engulfed in the Cold War. Most of the newly independent countries would have preferred to remain non-aligned, but the dynamics of international polarization forcefully inserted them in the East-West conflict. It is not an exaggeration to say that, to a large extent, the Cold War was started and was also concluded in the Middle East. Didn't it start as Bruce Cunningham in his superb book of history would remind us with Stalin's attempt to expand south into Iran, into the Dardanelles, into Greece. Could we forget that the largest Arab-Israeli wars, notably in 56, 67, and 73, had led each time to scary nuclear posturing on the part of the then two, two superpowers? As far as Europe is concerned, its diminished place in world affairs was not to be better demonstrated than during the Suez Crisis, after which two leading European powers largely lost their impact on the region and abode by the two new superpowers' wishes. More to the point, I would submit that in a very particular twist of history, around the year 1979, that is a full decade before the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Middle East, which pre previously was far from being only on the receiving end of the large superpowers, was a theater for a number of crucial events that together constituted the announcement of the end of the Cold War. In a matter of a single year or so, 1979-1980, the Middle East, from being a regional mirror of the East-West conflict, was crossing the line into the post-Cold War era, while the Cold War itself was not only surviving, but being systematically revived elsewhere in the world by the Reagans and Andropovs of that time, as our chair has beautifully described in one of his books. Six, a, few, a few events that took place in 1979-1980 have extracted this region from the Cold War dynamics and threw it into the world we are now in. Taken together, these events could have closed Europe's eclipse in the Middle East by accelerating the end of the Cold War that had strategically marginalized it. They ended up, on the contrary, amplifying that eclipse. What these four events are, 
are first the fall of the Shah. That is a revolution conducted neither in European terms nor in European terms of reference. Diplomatically, Khomeini's Iran was indeed neither East nor West. And culturally, clerics have decided then not to inspire power, but to practice it themselves. And they were following in that neither John Locke nor Karl Marx, two European thinkers, but opening a way for a third possibility that is of the ruling faqih. Second, we had the first uh, uh, peace treaty between Israel and the uh, largest Arab country in March of that year, in March of 1979. And this was also important because it signaled the end of what we used to call the Arab-Israeli conflict. The Arab-Israeli conflict was made of conventional wars that took place in 25 years, four times, in 1948, 1956, 1967, and again in 1973. Four conventional wars between regular armies. All this found an end. In fact, in the following 35 years, since 1973 until today, we did not have a single uh, Arab-Israeli confrontation of that kind. We had something else. We had, in fact, a change of the conflict into an asymmetrical uh, war and a permanent one, basically waged from the southern of my country, but sometimes waged from elsewhere, as is the case now in Gaza. So the whole conflict was transformed with this uh, peace treaty of 1979. The third event was, of course, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that led to, for the first time, the cooperation of militant Islam with the West against the Soviet Union in order to precipitate the end of the Cold War. And finally, the Iraq-Iran war that was one of the most deadliest and longest wars in the 20th century, but its logic had nothing to do with the East-West logic. While the new Cold War was raging elsewhere, it, uh, it uh, sort of put on the table a number of new uh, paradigms that had nothing to do with the East-West, that is the opposition between Sunni and Shia, the opposition between an old empire and a new nation state, the opportunity uh, and, uh, and the new paradigms that had to do uh, much more with the uh, uh, sort of Iraq uh, playing a very ambiguous role as at the same time protector and racketeer of the uh, GCC countries, uh, etc. All this we will have to live with for the following 25 years, but all this one decade up before and the fall of the Berlin Wall was already an indication that the Middle East was somehow announcing the world as we are in right now much more than this uh, by then archaic logic of, of, the, of the Cold War. These four events have together changed dramatically the Middle East, a good decade before the Berlin Wall was to fall. With a few exceptions, the European reaction was basically to ignore the strategic message and to concentrate on the rest, which was to pursue the Cold War logic in Afghanistan against Moscow, to use the Iraq-Iran war for mercantilistic purposes, helping and betraying the two belligerents, and more importantly, to ignore the fact that around that time, 
that is the end of the 80s, America was becoming a net importer of oil and therefore dramatically building up its military presence in that part of the world. Very little attention was paid either to the very negative effects the partial peace between Egypt and Israel had produced on regional stability, nor to the redefinition of the various domestic and regional conflicts in religious and sectarian terms, and even less to the large opportunities opened for Europe in a region that had been able to extract itself from the Cold War divide long before that Cold War was to end. In other terms, while the Suez Crisis of 1956 imposed a substantial marginalization of European influence, soon to be compounded by the French departure from Algeria in 62 and the British withdrawal from the Gulf in 1968, the 1979 events opened a post-Cold War logic where indigenous forces, mostly in the name of Islam, were fighting against the two poles of the Cold War, first against Moscow and Afghanistan, and later against the United States almost everywhere. 1956 was a relative defeat for all of Europe. 1979 could have been a new opportunity for Europe if only Europe was not then so busy reordering her own house, redefining her own borders, and revisiting her own project. The triumph of the first religious revolution, the peace between Israel and the largest Arab country, the war between Iraq and Iran, and the Islamic mobilization against Moscow and Afghanistan made 1971 as important in the Middle East as 1989 was going to be in Europe. Europe will, however, take some 15 years before contributing a constructed approach to that region. That is the Barcelona process launched only in 1995, a process that was going to be too little, too late. It compared miserably with Central and Eastern Europe in terms of aid, of investments, and most importantly in terms of the availability or not of the famous golden carrot of access to the Union itself. On the conceptual level, it introduced a geostrategic frame that is the Mediterranean, Nobody I know around the Mare Nostrum has ever been happy with. Although we all recognize that we have olive oil in common, it is hard to find anything else. The Mediterranean is a euphemism that tries to drone specific issues, such as Turkey's accession, Europe's inability to export security to the Middle East, and the unique dependence of the Maghreb countries on European markets, as well as its migratory challenge, into the artificially constructed concept of the Mediterranean. Like any regional frame, it is defined by those included as well as by those excluded. And the exclusion of the eight countries bordering the Gulf is, as we shall see, another weakness very hard to sustain in the future. Europeans recognized at last that the Middle East was of their business, but their response in, in its geographical frame, in its objectives, in the methods, to be used drew very little on the Europeans' own long familiarity with the Middle East and their excellent knowledge of it, and very much on a few bureaucrats' abstract ideas. Those bureaucrats would not understand why my third answer to this lecture question would be to point to the huge symbolic resources one can find in the Middle East. Beside the geographic location, the long history of foreign interference, the Middle East is Europe's business because this part of the world 
is endowed with non-material resources that make it a magnet for a substantial part of humanity and to Europeans in particular. We indeed are now in the midst of a culturalist wave. That is a tendency to explain the world in cultural terms, while identity and cultural dividers do have substantial impact on domestic politics as well as in world politics. Europe itself is not immune to the cyclical return of culturalism as an important ingredient in its Weltanschauung, recently illustrated in the debates about its relationship to Christianity or on the way to deal with immigration. On the left, notably with Emmanuel Wallerstein's ideas on the emergence of competing geocultures, as much on the right with Lord Scarborough, Michael Lind, and more recently Samuel P. Huntington's propositions on a clash of civilization, social sciences have been invaded by a culturalist paradigm, a trend already observed in many past episodes of European history in the 16th century following discovery of alien cultures as well as in during the Enlightenment period. A return to culturalism apparently fits those periods of time when history seems to be progressing at too rapid a tempo, bringing its load of tremendous change to people's daily life, when well-established ideologies, like the ones well-established in the 20th century, socialism, nationalism, are clearly rejected, or when encounters with other people from other traditions become more frequent and more intimate. All these three conditions appear to be met these days in what we call globalization. In a word, invaded by identity politics and in social sciences dominated by culturalist paradigms, the Middle East just feels at home. Modernity and modernization presupposed a social transformation. Identity politics presupposes a return to primordialism, or more precisely, a manipulation of traditional divides by very modernized elites, what others have rightly called a reinvention of tradition. At this game, actors in this part of the world are extremely well equipped and all the more tempted to play that tune that it precisely has a word rather than a local impact. This is particularly true of religious identity markers. In a globalized world where identity politics plays such a crucial role, religion also feels at home. It so happens that being the source of three important religions at the very least, in fact many more than that, the Middle East can use and manipulate at length its symbolic resources as exporter of faith. I have said elsewhere that the Middle East exports only three types of commodities, people, petrol, and profits. And it seems to me that in a globalized world dominated by identity politics, this mix of people, of prophecies, and of petrol often contributes to the rest of the world well-being, but sometimes sets the whole world on fire. Being transnational by definition, religion is vindicated by globalization. In 1648, when Westphalian treaties were signed, the Pope then, rightly feeling that state sovereignty was detrimental to religious power, decreed that the treaties were null, void, shameful, unchristian, and so until the end of times. In its multiple definition as faith, as an institution, as a language, as a market, 
religion as a face, as an institution, as a language, and as a market. Religion feels squeezed in a world of nation states, but it flourishes with the triumph of globalization. All this makes the Middle East even more relevant, my friends. Nothing can illustrate its crucial importance as depository of symbolic resources with word impact as much as the rewriting of the Crusades. In the West, in Britain in particular, the Crusades are now viewed far from what we used to learn from Sir John Runciman's three volumes epic as something where faith, the fear of God, the redemption have been the basic motivation of these crusades. On the other side, the crusades are a typical metaphor in Osama bin Laden's language and so for many reasons because the crusades are an external intervention because they lead to settlement as the Israeli case would show that uh, they are done in the name of religion that the mobilization is uh, popular and also for bin Laden and this acolytes because it has a happy, ha happy end. At the end, uh, the crusaders were defeated. So the crusades is now a sort of being rewritten in the West, but also being used uh, as a metaphor uh, in, in the Muslim world. More recently, Orientalism has been very much intertwined uh, with that, uh, as so clearly uh, depicted by Edward Said. I will not go uh, back to it. But the truth is that it is hard to find a single place in the world where conflicts on real estate in a very small city such as Jerusalem seem to be so important for the Jew in New York, for the Muslim in Kuala Lumpur, or for the Christian in Sao Paulo. You would easily meet Jews around the world deeply committed to keeping intact their imagined Eretz Israel. You would also find Christians who ask you only about the fate of Iraq's Chaldeans, and you will find Sunni and Shia in India or in as far as New York, deeply troubled and sometimes entirely aligned on the Sunni-Shia confrontation taking place in Iraq and to a certain extent in Lebanon. Being transnational by definition, Islamism is frustrated by the Muslims' poor standing in world politics. It seeks to correct that state of affairs, sometimes through violent means. Beside the many, many differences opposing them to each other on substance as well as on methods, there is a common thread running through bin Laden's utterances, Iranian diplomacy, Mahathir Muhammad's stands, and many common Muslim belief that Islam is not properly treated in today's world politics, that it does not have the place it deserves in the concert of nations, neither in the Security Council composition nor in the setting of the so-called international community's agenda, nor in terms of impact on the reshaping of the world through war, trade, or norms. To conclude, from that widespread frustration that a new world war has started between the West and Islam, or Islamofascism, which is a very poorly defined enemy indeed, as Bernard Lewis or Norman Podoritz have been preaching is certainly a fantasy. Or as Fred Halliday, again, in another one of his books, is a myth, but it is a myth that has already a huge impact on both sides of this constructed divide and could become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy for true believers 
both in the West and in the Muslim world. Of course, the basic issues are prosaically secular, political and economic in essence. But mobilization is using religion as its language, and this is not innocent. The language is slowly muting into substance. All non-Muslim actors have to adjust to this fantasy, too often presented as a confrontation between Islam and the West all over the world, from the valleys of Afghanistan to Beirut streets to Abiy in Sudan, Nigeria, and of course New York. Emerging Asian powers cannot remain indifferent to it as they have to deal with their own Muslim minorities in India or in China, as they increase their dependence on the Middle East for their energy needs, as a market for their products, and as a destination for their migrant workers. But they have also a clear advantage in seeing this so-called conflict framed in a way that does not consider them, that is, the Asian powers, as belligerents. If the basic conflict is between the West and Islam, they can enjoy a sort of neutrality that clearly facilitates the building up of their own position in world politics while Muslim and Western countries fight it over to their own disadvantage. Europe, among non-Middle Eastern countries, is the most to lose from the durability or from the expansion of that myth. Its proximity to the Middle East, the millions of Muslims who have chosen to live in it, its past history with that region, its very hot debate on defining itself in cultural terms, and more importantly, the very ambivalent reaction of its elites to the very idea of a global war between Islam or Islamism and the West, let alone the hotly debated issue on the very existence of the West itself, all this puts it on the forefront of that battle. That is why a conclusion at least is unavoidable. If the Middle East is the depository and origin of sensitive symbolic resources of that magnitude, of resources that can give humanity hope and inspiration, but can also be used as a frame for confrontation, it is definitely Europe's business. My fourth answer is, of course, much more material. That is oil. That is oil. Beside geography, beside history, the symbolic resources, I think that there is an evident, an easy one to propose that is oil. Of course, oil has been a strategic commodity, at least since World War II. And it explains very much the Japanese invasion of Indonesia in 41, or the German attempt to reach the Caucasus later. Wars for oil are never stated explicitly, but it is almost everywhere in Kirkuk, in southern Iraq, in the Sudanese area of Abiy, and elsewhere. What I want to know, what I want to say about it, that even those who used to question the very idea that oil and gas, of course, are strategic commodities, have to change their mind right now. I think that. One important aspect of the Cold War had been that the two superpowers for most of the time during that Cold War were self-sufficient in energy terms. The Soviet Union was not only a large producer but a large exporter and the United States at least until the 80s were a net exporter of oil. If you look at the world as it is today, you will find easily that all kinds of powers 
emerging or well established military or economic with only one exception that is the federation of russia are all net importers of oil so what was not what was not a strategic commodity in the cold war because it was too cheap and because the two superpowers were self sufficient in it is no more the case right now and oil is even more of a strategic commodity when the market is tight because the gap between the supply and the demand is narrowing by the day it was like 5 million barrel a day on a world demand of almost 85 million barrel a day it is now less than 2 million barrel a day between supply and demand and what we have is really a decline in the number of big discoveries all over the world i remember very vividly a few months ago here when the president the ceo of total company uh, was speaking once and he said before a large uh, audience in one of uh, the west end hotels that uh, basically we should recognize as CEO of oil companies that we are not finding much oil and that anyway most of the oil produced in the world is in the hand of national companies like 85% now uh, uh, I remember that like 10 or 15 uh, minutes later uh, the oil barrel uh, took like uh, two more uh, dollars and uh, I hope uh, the relation was not uh, uh, that automatic between that utterance and and uh, and uh, and the, the the oil the oil barrel, but it so happens that the Middle East, that the Middle East or the Greater Middle East or the Arab world or the Muslim world, I leave it to you uh, to you to define it, has a very very specific place in 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 that respect. The Gulf itself, in the Gulf itself, today. 40% of oil, all oil traded in the world goes through, through one place, that is, that is Hormuz. Uh, if you take the Arab world, then you will have 31% of all oil production and 45% of all oil exports go from, from the Middle East. And if you put together the combination of this fantasy of Islam versus the West on the one hand, and if you are reminded on the other that basically 70% of all oil reserves are in Muslim lands, then you would come to the conclusion that there is something wrong here, or, or at least that it is very hard to reconcile these uh, two uh, basic, uh, basic, uh, basic data. It also happens that contrary to books and to other things, oil and gas cannot be delivered by Amazon.com, and therefore you need pipes, you need uh, uh, to secure these pipes, and you need for that to have orderly and quiet places, not only where these commodities are produced, but also in the places uh, where uh, they, they go. And uh, to compound all this, uh, with $126 for the, for the, for the barrel, uh, oil produces a lot of money, and in fact, it produces a very important market for all kinds of products in the same places where this oil is produced. So it is the most banal thing to say that uh, oil is my fourth answer to those who believe that this part of the world is uh, irrelevant. However, 
I would add a footnote to it. And this footnote is, in my view, extremely, uh, uh, extremely crucial. And the footnote is the following. There is a disconnection. There is a disconnection between military might in that part of the world, on the one hand, and dependence on the oil from that region on the other hand. Basically, if you look at the new pipelines being built, you will see easily that they are basically being built towards the east because energy demand in China, in India, and elsewhere is growing by the day. And in fact, it is really possible that by the year 2030, China, instead of the United States, will be the first importer of oil from mainly uh, the Middle East. But if you look at the military map of the world, you will see that uh, the United States of America, which imports less than 20% of its oil from that part of the world, is by far uh, the most important military power. And this also applies to trade with that part of the world. There is also a disconnection between trade GCC trade, but also Middle East trade with the other parts of the world and the military deployment. If you look carefully, you will see, for example, as far as the GCC is concerned, since now most of the, I mean, the second GDP in the area is, is in, in the Emirates now and not Egypt. Uh, Egypt comes only third after the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. Uh, you look uh, and see the trade figures and you will discover easily that only 10% of the foreign trade of the GCC goes to the United States of America, while one-third of that foreign trade goes to Asia and another third to Europe. If America is less dependent on the oil coming from that region, and if America is less dependent on trade with that region, but if it so happens that... Uh, 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 in military terms, there is nothing to compare with the American deployment uh, within the uh, central command that goes south from Tanzania uh, to the, to the, and, and in a V east to Uzbekistan and west to the Caspian Sea, including uh, the Gulf and most of the Middle East. There is nothing that can be compared to that, neither in Asia nor in Europe. And you probably put then your finger on a, basic, on a basic imbalance between dependence on oil and trade on the one hand and availability of military might on the other hand. And this is the footnote I wanted to add to, add to this fourth answer I was giving, that is Europe finds itself in a situation where it only has its soft power its soft power to sort of use in order to defend a much deeper dependency on oil and gas coming from that region and a much larger share of trade with that region than the United States of America. However, soft power is great, and I fully agree with a Turkish colleague who once said that uh, Europe's uh, soft power has transformed Turkey while American hard power has destroyed Iraq. I fully agree with that sentence. However, I would like to point to the limits of soft power in a region that is very much defined until now 
as the streets of Beirut and other places these days would show by raw and rough hard power. Uh, to, to this we probably uh, can come uh, in the conclusion. These were my very rapidly my four answers to this idea why uh, is it uh, Europe's business to be in the Middle East. But I would end this uh, uh, remarks by going back to where I started. That is how difficult it is to define Europe borders, not to the West, they are easy to define, but much more to the East, where nobody exactly knows if they stop at Varna or at the Turkish-Iranian border or in Kiev or in the Urals, as the good old general used to say. It is, but this is too easy when you compare Europe to the Middle East. And I do believe that the two regions have a fifth and more conceptual reason to be somehow linked to each other and to make the Middle East a uh, sort of um, uh, one of Europe's business. That is, there is going to be a mutual interaction between these two regions in the way they define themselves in the near future. Not only because we don't know exactly where Turkey is, not only because we don't, I'm not really sure that some islands in the Mediterranean do not belong to the Middle East. We are not even sure that the Moroccans will stop asking to join the EU. But also because the way Europe is going to define itself will have a huge impact on that region. Because if you go into Turkey, then Lebanon, possibly Israel and other places would also want to join. And if you stop, then you give a completely cultural and possibly religious definition to the Union. So it has a huge impact on the Middle East, precisely because if it is difficult to define the Middle East, uh, difficult to define Europe, it is almost impossible to define the Middle East. You have a geographical definition, but there is no agreed delineation. In fact, the definitions of the region vary by as much as three to 4,000 miles east or west, if you include North Africa, if you include Central Asia, or if you exclude these two subregions. If you look into history, a historical definition of the Middle East is almost unacceptable. In fact, the concept of the Middle East has been built here in London Harbor almost a century ago as a station on the road to India the Near East being basically the Aegean and Malta, the Middle East running from Suez to Aden, and the Far East starting somewhere at the eastern coast of the Indian Ocean. But this had to do with maritime traffic at that time, starting in London, and nobody likes it now. So why, how about a cultural definition? But it is very hard to accept a cultural definition. Because it was the culture that created that interest, that acted dynamically along with brute political, economic, and military rationales. And therefore, a cultural definition of the Middle East will make it almost extremely controversial. So why not a psychological, by saying that the definition of the Middle East is a definition along the perception of the people inside. Those who believe they belong to the Middle East are in the Middle East. But 
then you will find that most of the people in the so-called Middle East will never use the concept of Middle East to point to the region in which they will, they will say they are in the Muslim world, the Arab world, you name it, but very, very rarely to the Middle East. So why not a strategic definition? But if you look into the strategic definition of the Middle East, you will find that uh, uh, the various definitions, the French, the British, the American nowadays are extremely different from one another and you cannot really rely on it. So why not an ideological that basically accept the Middle East as uh, something to replace the old cultural heterogeneity of that part of the world. But this is unacceptable to leading parties in the Middle East. So yes, the Middle East is very much Europe's business among other reasons because it is waiting for Europe to define itself in order to do the same. Thank you. Fourth Republic fell over Algeria in 1958. Sarkozy won his last presidential election in part of hostility to Turkish The Germans, of course, gambled everything in the First World War on the alliance of Turkey. And the Russians lost the war in Afghanistan, not the only cause of the end of the war, but a significant factor. The Italians got into the disastrous war in what was then part of the Middle then to his own people in Spain the tactics he learned against the Arabs 
improper. And I think this vulnerability, and the same could be said for America, look at Qatar and Iran, look at Reagan and Iran Gate, and as for Liverpool, Syria, we have 20, 25 minutes for questions. I think I'll be happy to answer questions on the region. If we see it or as the Arabs see it, a month ago, all the region, which you said are two very different things, the flow is open. Yes. Gentlemen, go back. Yes. Yes, yes, indeed. I have a question about the European relationship with the Russian Federation. How do you see the energy relations between Russia and the European Union compromising European sovereignty? And to what extent would that affect European leverage in the Middle East? Without a major political crisis, you will think twice or three times before attacking a new military target that will push the prices into the 200 and 200. Therefore, from being a target, from being a magnet for foreign interference, oil is possibly, possibly, becoming a protection by the oil producing and why not? By Iran, to mention the uh, usual aspect of the In the protection being producing uh, such an amount of oil and gas, uh, is becoming a protection when the prices are not $5, but $125. The second 
observation is that as far as Russia is concerned, it has been transformed. I mean, the fact that oil and gas have been important commodities and these days gradually overpriced commodities, it has given uh, Russia uh, much earlier than a lot of people expected a new impact on world politics that is translated sometimes crudely in political terms in dealing with Russia's neighbors, in dealing with the EU, and even in some other forums such as the Security Council. And my third observation is that uh, this is not leading to the institutionalizing of new OPEC for gas, as some people wish, including the Iranians, to some extent, some other gas producers, because OPEC itself is not representative of the oil producing countries, and certainly not including Russia. But my feeling is that you do not need much coordination among producers, that is, among Middle East and Eurasian producers, when the market is so tight. You need coordination, basically, when the market is not tight, in order to reduce production. But when you start, you see your production declining a bit, as is oil production declining a bit in Russia these days, and in Iran these days, and in Syria, and in Oman, and in many countries, for technical reasons or for lack of, uh, 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 for lack of reserves, then you do not need much coordination. It goes by itself. The coordination is almost organic. In, in, in. And this is... Yes, yeah. So, uh, these are my few observations. I hope I answered Yes, I'm in the Thank you, Professor uh, Salami. Uh, you give a, a comprehensive uh, view of uh, the relationship that uh, one finds difficult uh, uh, to plant uh, anywhere that uh, could ask you a difficult question. However, I would go to something near to your heart. As uh, Europe's failure to, uh, to, to, to create like a model for its ideals if one were to, I mean, I'm sure many people will fault me to say Europe is still shaping its own destiny now. So, but I mean to create like a model culturally, uh, historically, and whatever in a small country like Lebanon itself. So would you, would you agree with this, that uh, Europe has a headache from its own friends or foes alike? I mean, compare Iran, which uh, now the crisis uh, which, which come in now uh, on all of us, uh, that gives headache to Europe and to the world. And Turkey gives also headache with a friend to the West and friend to Europe, also to Europe for other reasons. So if you are friendly, you get a headache with somebody. If you are enemy, you get a headache as well. Would you agree that the cheapest way is to be friendly to a country like Lebanon and create a model and it's cheap as well? Thank you. It was necessarily coming, this question, so... It's welcome. I'm not going to go into a new lecture on Lebanon. Let me, in a few minutes, if you allow me, uh, say what I think about uh, this most uh, 
um, sort of um, the present crisis and how, how the Europeans can and have uh, reacted to it. There, ca there could be a number of readings of the present crisis. I will offer mine and uh, you can refute it, of course, and uh, I'm sure that uh, not everybody is happy with it, but it is mine and uh, uh, you can do with it whatever you want. I do believe that uh, uh, the crisis uh, in Lebanon is basically uh, part of a much larger crisis that is now opposing uh, very clearly and uh, what you can call militant Islam, led by the Iranian Republic. Uh, to a large extent, uh, you can find uh, echoes of this in Afghanistan, in Iraq, certainly in Palestine, and, uh, and more recently in Lebanon. Uh, the problem here, when you look into non-local actors and how they can behave uh, is you have basically three ways of sort of behaving. The first one is uh, through uh, diplomacy. And I would say that the West has been using in the past few years diplomacy in a very intensive way in order to promote uh, its positions in, in Lebanon and uh, around Lebanon. In fact, a huge number of uh, uh, UN security resolutions, uh, a huge number of initiatives, a huge amount of time devoted by a lot of people, uh, foreign ministers, etc., presidents, uh, had been devoted to that country in, in, in I would say, a disproportionate way uh, when you look at other crises uh, in the world. So diplomacy has been used to a large extent in order to sort of promote the Western point of view uh, in this and other similar crises in the, in the Middle East. The second uh, method is the uh, economic one. And this also has been used. Uh, a number of uh, economic sanctions have been imposed uh, in the Middle East. Uh, sometimes bilateral, sometimes multilateral, European, sometimes through the Security Council, on a number of actors uh, considered as behaving in an improper way as far as Lebanon is concerned. However, a third uh, uh, was not used, and that is uh, the military. Uh, and here you can see the limits of diplomacy and the limits of economic sanctions. The limits of diplomacy uh, when you have to face up to actors who are ready to play asymmetrical wars, especially since 1973, almost everywhere, in Afghanistan, in Lebanon, in Gaza, elsewhere. Uh, what do you do with them? Uh, diplomacy doesn't work with them. And economic sanctions do not really work with countries where basic food is subsidized and where there is some kind of self-sufficiency in agricultural and energy products. Production. Therefore, the two regular instruments of intervention in Lebanon and in similar crises in the Middle East have been used, and intensively so, in the past four or five years. But 
to an effect that is, let's say, limited. That is a third instrument. And the third instrument is the military, is the military. This applies to the whole region, and this applies to Lebanon in particular. What is happening in the whole region is that the military, when it is used, has not and is not producing the kind of effect people expected from it. Neither Israel's war in Lebanon in 06 has been very successful, nor the American uh, war in Iraq has been very successful either. So there are also limits to the West use of military instruments. And there is now some reluctance to uh, use military instruments uh, elsewhere. But again, those who are the West adversaries in the Middle East are using asymmetrical warfare in order to promote their action. They have used it in Gaza a year ago. They have used it in Beirut last week. There was a big reluctance on the part of the opposition in Lebanon to revert to military means. But my reading of the political situation in Lebanon before last Tuesday was that regular political means in order to affect the situation in Lebanon were not very successful in the opposition hands. Neither the sit-in in central Beirut was successful in bringing down the Senora cabinet, nor the resignation of six ministers from that cabinet nor a number of assassinations, nor the fact uh, that uh, uh, elections were taking place in a number of unions, uh, that is the lawyer unions, more recently the engineer unions, where the majority was able to score points. On top of that, a leading member of the opposition recently shifted sides and went into the majority calling for the election, immediate election, an unconditional election of the commander of chief, in chief of the army as president of the republic. So in political terms, the opposition was not winning. Therefore, the temptation was big to use military means. These military means were not used in the past 18 months for a very specific reason. Because for 25 years, the Hezbollah has been able not only to get people ready to die and to fight for its cause, <coughs> but also another resource, that is the support it was getting from Iran and from Syria. But a third resource as well, that is most Lebanese, even those who are not Muslim, who are not Shia, were ready to support Hezbollah because Hezbollah indeed never used its own weapons against fellow Lebanese for 25 years. Therefore, there was a reluctance in the leadership of Hezbollah to use these weapons for internal political reasons because I think the leadership of that party was fully aware of the fact that using for the first time in a blatant manner the weapons Hezbollah had in a domestic political issue would lead <coughs> to the loss of the third resource Hezbollah had. That is the fact that most Lebanese 
from various sources, from various political inclinations, even those who were against Hezbollah in domestic political terms, were not ready to challenge the fact that Hezbollah is indeed a militia that does not use its weapons against her enemies. All this, all this disappeared last Tuesday because apparently there was a point where the calculation of the cost of having the opposition unsuccessful in pushing the cabinet out and in imposing her own agenda over the majority. And the cost of using these weapons for political reasons shifted into a new direction and there were people who thought that losing the third resource Hezbollah had benefited from was costly but not as costly as the creeping weakness of the opposition forces. That is my reading. And that is why I agree with Mr. Nasrallah when he says that a new period has opened in Lebanon. Because from now on, the possibility of the use of Hezbollah weapons in a domestic conflict is a precedent. What we witnessed last week is a precedent that could be repeated in the future. And on the other hand, there is a number of Lebanese who will now change their own reading dramatically uh, of, that, of that part. And therefore, we are now in a new period of time uh, where this connection of Lebanese of various political positions ready and willing to solicit uh, foreign uh, intervention, foreign that is Eastern or Western, uh, and of Eastern and Western countries ready to intervene in Lebanon, transforming what we would like to see as a country into practically a battleground. Uh, the, the, the risks are higher uh, than ever for this transformation. Thank you for that very powerful introduction. I'm not a specialist on Lebanon, but I went there in the spring of 2004. And on the second day, I received an invitation from the deputy head of Hezbollah, Sheikh Naim Qasim, to go and meet him. And I went to his office, which I, in a building which I think is no longer there. And the first thing that struck me, there were two pictures on the wall, only two pictures. Imam Ayatollah Khomeini and Imam Ayatollah Khamenei, and no one else, no one else. When I asked him about the relationship with Iran, he was very hurt. He said, every major decision that we take here we send a report first to Tehran, and they give us their view. And ultimately, it's the leader, the Rahbat, who decides. This apropos, the more benign decision in the early 90s to go into Lebanese politics and the Supreme Military Group. So the question, which is latent in what you're saying, is who has taken this decision? If, and as you and I have both studied revolutionary countries and how far it's the local revolutionary group, how far it's the state which controls it, this goes back to China, Soviet Union, my own thesis that I did here on the now disappeared Democratic Republic of Yemen. It's never a simple answer, but at some point you have to pose it. Uh, and I think the answer may lie in what you began by saying, which is it's part of a broader pattern. Things are reaching ahead in the crisis between the United States and Iran over the nuclear issue and in Iraq, and the two are closely linked, and this is an extension of that. 
whether it was also a birthday present to the Israelis, because people in the Middle East are great believers in dates, uh, it cannot be excluded, although, but it was coming for other reasons. Anyway, we have time perhaps for one more question. Yes, uh, yes Professor Pamuk. You spoke very eloquently about why the Middle East is Europe's business. However, Europe faces a lot of constraints as it goes about its business in the Middle East. I know it's a difficult question, but would you care to elaborate how this business should be conducted? What through what means should this business should be conducted? I think this is a very strategic question indeed. I do believe that uh, the basic means used by the uh, European Union in the past 20 years or so belong to what we call now, I know it became an, an industry now, or Joe Nye transformed it into an industry, what we call soft power. That is being a model for the others in terms of governance, in terms of uh, regionalization, in terms of being a beacon for transformation, and use foreign policy as a transformative process in order to affect uh, the way these governments uh, operate. Second, so first being an example, being a, a model. Second, use positive conditionality in your dealing with uh, the various countries in order to bring them uh, into uh, doing certain things or enacting certain legislation. And this produced a lot of impact, I think, in your own country, Professor Pamuk. Uh, and it also produced some effect in some other countries, notably countries such as Morocco. The third uh, uh, mean was to play a quasi-security role, but that belonged to the soft rather than the, to the hard power. That is the attempt to play some role in monitoring the gates between Gaza and the Sinai, and some role in monitoring the Palestinian elections, and some role in training uh, the Iraqi police uh, recently, which are, yes, which can be viewed as security operations, but are mainly soft power rather than military action or hard power projection, as uh, is the case. Uh, there is a fourth uh, attempt, and I'm really worried about the future of this fourth attempt, not because it happened in my own country, but because I viewed it as a model for the future that is now very much threatened since last week. That is the recomposition of the UNIFIL in South Lebanon. The Europeans were extremely reluctant to play this hybrid role, half soft and half hard, that was asked of them in South Lebanon through the new UNIFIL, uh, not the old one which was entirely useless, but the new one that certainly did not apply Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, but applied what we uh, 
uh, technicians would call Chapter 6.9 of the Charter. That is almost everything that is in Chapter 7 without the reference to it. And in fact, the French went with uh, uh, 13 uh, Leclerc tanks and, and the Italians sent one of their best battalions, the San Marco one, the Spaniards, the Poles, etc., etc. And in fact, it was a very happy, a very happy marriage of two ingredients, two basic ingredients. Europeans who, after a huge negotiation over the terms of reference of their deployment, uh, because they had Srebrenica in mind, because they had Rwanda in mind, and they did not want a third humiliation of that amplitude in the Middle East. And uh, they were right in doing that. So a marriage, a happy marriage between uh, like five or 6,000 Europeans and five or 6,000 non-Middle Eastern Muslims from Malaysia, Indonesia, and elsewhere. And not only I thought that the concoction was extremely successful because, one, it was bringing back Europe into this fourth role besides soft power, which is not entirely soft, but not entirely hard either. That is a UN operation with some muscle. It was bringing Europe after some reluctance to do that. But it was also bringing together as a pacifier force in the Middle East, not America hard power, nor anything of that kind, but a UN sanctioned half European and half Muslim uh, sort of contingent, which was a happy marriage. And third, because I saw this as a possible model, one day for Gaza, one day for Iraq. And therefore, this resolution 1701 is a resolution in which I believe as a model and not only as a, a sort of ad hoc reaction to a crisis in South Lebanon after the 06 war. However, I should be very honest with you and say that this model is now threatened if in Beirut there is a cabinet, there is a government that does not have the possibility of having independent diplomatic and security moves, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the renewed or reinforced UNIFIL has a future. And therefore, it is not only South Lebanon that will become uh, a worry for us. It is the very model of a European beginning of playing that role of exporters of security, although within or under a UN flag, but in a, in a substantial manner. I mean, without the Europeans, the 1701 would never have been implemented. This is threatened by what happened in Beirut uh, in the past week. And therefore, I, I, I am really worried, uh, not only about my the country where, where I was born, but also about this uh, model of a new uh, European approach, a new European approach that is half-hard uh, uh, and half-soft. The real problem, the real challenge remains that uh, the Middle East is a paradise for what we call in our jargon the realist school in international relations. That is power politics as a rude, rough, uh, naked uh, projection of force. 
Uh, and therefore, uh, the Europeans have had a big problem uh, emphasizing their huge capabilities and soft power in a region that, let's face it, shares with the largest Atlantic power over the ocean uh, a deep belief in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the utility of, of military might. Unfortunately, we have to draw the discussion to an end. Now it's just after eight. Um, when you were saying that the possible developments in South Lebanon, the prejudicing of this very interesting international force would have broader implications. If you add to this the difficulties of the European policy in Darfur, and if you add to it the almost certain failure over two or four years of the whole European, NATO, and other operation in Afghanistan, then our dear friend, the Defense of International Peace and Security, and humanitarian intervention, uh, these look in serious difficulties, and of course those who pay the biggest price are in the countries themselves. Uh, Yossan, I'd like to thank you very much for this. It struck me as you were talking in your fourth section about the symbolic and discursive role of the Middle East, how it was you, a Lebanese professor, who was bringing the French and the British together, bringing Sciences Po and LSE, for which Shukran, and we thank you very much, and hope you will continue this important soft power and mediatory role. Uh, just one final reflection on Europe and the Middle East. You mentioned the importance of the Iranian Revolution. Uh, you will recall 40 years ago when the French students demonstrated, uh, the reply of the French right some weeks later were massive demonstrations in the Champs-Élysées, led, if I recall, by Monsieur Pierre Mendes France, the former prime minister, and which led finally to the goalist victory at the end of June. And although I was an enthusiastic supporter of May 68, some of whose hours and nights I spent in this very room, uh, I always say that May was followed by June. Uh, during the Iranian Revolution, at one point the Shah was protesting to his advisors, saying, look, you know, I've given the middle classes prosperity, I've given them to travel, I've given them jobs. Where are they? Why aren't they demonstrating in the streets like the Golds people did uh, in the Champs-Élysées? And the minister replied, Your Majesty, because they are all also walking and having coffee in the Champs-Élysées. Uh, and they had already left the country. Uh, so I'm sure this and many other similarities will strike us. Uh, thank you for bringing these questions here. On the matter of our responsibilities and Professor Pamuk's very delicate word on which many volumes can be written uh, on the constraints, uh, I would draw attention to one constraint which concerns us here and which I've spoken many times in this room, the lack of people in Europe who know the history, the languages, the culture, the elites and the non-elites of this region. Uh, we are woefully ill-served uh, and in academic life, in business and in public life in this matter. Uh, we are at times overwhelmed by a sea of charlatans and instant experts uh, and if we are going to engage with this region which was prosperous and civilized when we were all in the trees, uh, we might uh, do well to put more effort and thought into this, not into centers with a study of Islam or globalization, but into actually studying how these societies work. And I fear we're a long way from that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.